Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. of midnight well the u.n general assembly is in town and so are a cavalcade of protesters demanding things like doing away with fossil fuels And uh, those protests are continuing as long as the U.N. General Assembly uh, is here in town. So where are we going as a country? Where are we going as a planet? What role will nations play? What role will climate change play? Someone who has spent a great deal of time thinking about these issues is Dr. Thomas P.M. Barnett. He's a military geostrategist. He's been a serial entrepreneur. He's been a widely read columnist and journalist. He's worked in the government. He's worked outside of the government. And now he's the author of uh, a fascinating new book with some very interesting solutions to some problems that the country and the world are facing. It's called America's New Map restoring our global leadership in an era of climate change and demographic collapse. Dr. Barnett, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for uh, getting up early for us on the radio. Thanks for having me on, Frank. You know, we hear so often that the 20th century was the American century, that especially post-World War II, the United States was ascendant. It went from being um, one of many nations to being a global leader economically, in terms of world peace, in terms of uh, diplomacy, a bunch of other things. And obviously there's a lot of things that played into that. A lot of folks say that when the history of the 21st century is written, it may be the Chinese century. It may be the Indian century. You don't see a lot of people necessarily betting long on America. So I'll ask you, is the era of American exceptionalism over? And depending upon your answer to that, how do we get it back? I would say it isn't uh, for the profound reason that we as a society, we as a nation, are best positioned and best experienced 
at the kind of skills that are going to be needed this century to deal with these large structural changes like demographic aging, rapid aging uh, across the planet, uh, climate change and what it's going to do more to the lower latitudes versus the upper latitudes. We're seeing a shift of the world from terms that have been historically east-west, you know, uh, uh, longitudinal on a map. We're switching from that world to a world that's going to be increasingly north-south or latitudinal in terms of its primary dynamics and where integration is going to occur. So it's not always, you know, are you the best or the strongest uh, superpower out there? It is, you know, what are the skills you bring to bear and what are the uh, the liabilities that you carry with you when you meet a, a great uh, strategic challenge like this. And that's what we're looking at, uh, this shift from an east-west world uh, to a north-south world because of these three large structural changes that are going on inside the uh, international system now. Climate change, which is going to impact lower latitudes, the global south, a lot more than the global uh, north. Uh, you've got uh, demographic transitions that are going on across the world. The North already beginning to see demographic collapse, aging. Uh, countries like Italy and Japan, they're shutting down schools because they just don't have any babies anymore. Sure. Right out of children are men or something like that, the movie. Uh, and then the third reality that we face is that the great achievement of American-style globalization has been to create for the first time in human history something experts always said was impossible, and that is a majority global middle class. And that future of economic growth engine is going to be very different from the one we've had for the last six, seven decades uh, since the Second World War, which has been very Western-centric and increasingly very American-centric. We were the big driver of the global economy. The future of the global economy now and this is what's so challenging us on an on interpersonal basis, is that it's not going to be white. It's not going to be American. It's not going to be European. It's not going to be Western. It's going to be something very different that makes us, along with all this climate change and the fact that we got a young South and, and a very rapidly aging North, it, all these things point to the same outcome, which is North-South integration. Okay? And when you look at it along those lines, that is a lot of uh, mixing of, of, of peoples and, and races. And that's going to take a tremendous toll on all the major players out there. But the one I would argue that's the least racist and the most adaptable to change and the most able to redefine itself, uh, that's the one that's going to do the best. And I think that's the United States, it, that's, despite it, our flaws. That's a very interesting. And I, I have a lot of questions based on uh, everything that you just said. Meantime, though, whenever I bring up uh, climate change, uh, I am, you know, deluged with someone who has facts at the ready, who are, are who wants to challenge me on everything. So if uh, you're a lot smarter than I am. So since I am unable to uh, withstand the the challenges of climate skeptics, I want to invite people to call in and have you address their questions about what role man-made fossil fuel consumption it plays in climate Climate change. So if people want to um, bring up that uh, I don't even understand necessarily the arguments against it, but if they want to bring any climate skeptical arguments up with uh, Dr. Tom Barnett, now's the time. 800-848-9222. That's 
1-800-242-2222. You have a uh, chapter in your book where you talk about globalization, the positives and the negatives. You uh, refer to it as Frankenstein's monster. All over the world, the Western world especially, we have seen the rise of nationalist politicians and parties, people like right. uh, Donald Trump in the United States, people like uh, Orban. Bols- you know, Orban in Hungary, uh, Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, right. Marine Le Pen in uh, France, and nationalist parties in Portugal, Romania, Spain, that would have been considered fringe not long ago, but are seeing right. more and more people respond to their messaging. Does this show that uh, whatever the pluses and minuses of globalization might be, that we're seeing sort of uh, a a reaction, a negative reaction from the population of these countries towards globalization. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, whenever there's a, a, a force of such a profound nature like globalization, there's going to be friction. And since globalization, you know, kind of forces the merger of identities and, and peoples along, you know, economic, social, security, all sorts of lines, all that content flowing. It seems to homogenize people uh, in terms of their perceptions. It doesn't, I would argue. It, it only brings out uh, our desire to maintain our differences all the more. Hence, you get things like Trump and Orban and others. You find people and, and nations trying to hold on to what's unique in their culture uh, in, in, in the fear that they're going to be swamped over time. And that gets expressed a lot in terms of immigration. You know, they are coming, they are diluting our whatever, our nation. They are making us different. They are turning my country into something I don't recognize. Uh, this is not the America I grew up in. Um, this is not a future where I recognize myself in it. And those are all very strong and, and powerful relations. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Well, let's let's talk about that. Right. I mean, is there some validity to that? I mean, there are a lot of countries uh, just in our hemisphere, the um, or our corner of the world, uh, Venezuela, um, a number of others that are dealing sure. with very serious refugee crises. Are Western countries that are having a difficult demographic time, like the United States, but even some of the others that you just mentioned, should those countries be expected to just take all, say, 7.8 million Venezuelan refugees? Doesn't there have to come a point where there's some sort of a limit? Right. And now you're getting to the crux of the book, which is to say when you have all these uh, global structural challenges creating impetus, 
people from the south to move to the north. And climate change is going to drive it more than anything. I mean, you're really subjecting three to five billion people across the lower latitudes to a future environmental reality that's going to go at least four or five decades to about the 2070s, 2080s, where they're going to be living in a part of the world where temperature ranges and precipitation is going to be roughly what you'd get if you were living today in the Saharan Desert. Okay, the Saharan Desert, not well populated tough place to live okay and if you're going to subject three to five billion people across the lower latitudes to that kind of reality on a, on a regular basis and we got a glimpse of it this summer we got a glimpse of it and it was scary i mean it really freaked people out to have those kinds of temperatures but that's going to become the norm for the next three four five decades you're going to see people move towards the poles which is something we've seen with every species around the planet for the last seven eight decades they are moving poleward inexorably over time, and they're moving up in elevation. I mean, they don't care about our science. They don't care what our scientific consensus is. They don't care how our people trust or not trust scientists. These are species the world over simply responding to environmental stimulus. So if you're worried about can we take everybody from Venezuela, I mean, that's a good worry in the sense. Uh, we're not going to be able to take them all. So what are you going to do to keep them there under that stress? You're going to have to build structures. You're going to have to build relationships. You're going to have to build unions of belonging that go from north to south to integrate those parts of the world into a larger risk pool, socialize the risk to a certain extent. Because if you're not making the effort to bring them in from the heat, so to speak, uh, you're not going to be able to keep them in place and you're going to see mass migration that's going to dwarf anything we've had up to this point in history. Uh, so there's no doubt in your mind, obviously, that uh, climate change is real. Uh, you know, the clearest evidence to me is this species on the move that we've seen all across the planet. I mean, it's, it's the greatest uh, resource transfer in human history. Uh, especially when you consider it along the lines of land. I mean, land's the most elemental wealth we have. We're looking at roughly two Australias worth, about 15 million square kilometers, about two Australias worth of livable, arable land across the lower latitudes, basically going to disappear because of climate change in the next three, four, five decades. Meanwhile, we're going to see roughly the same amount of newly livable, arable land open up in the far north. Canada and Russia. So it's like this huge real estate transfer. We're taken from the poor, given to the rich, no money changing hands. And are you going to expect people to move in response to that loss and or opportunity, loss in the South, opportunity in the North? History says humanity will move in large numbers to escape a bad environment and come to a nicer environment. So we're looking at you know, mass resettlement of uh, potentially hundreds of millions of people, maybe if, a billion people over this century. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Thomas Barnett. His new book is America's New Map, Restoring Our Global Leadership in an Era of Climate Change and Demographic Collapse. If people have questions or comments specifically on the climate issue, because a lot of people that um, that uh, believe in climate change are very reluctant to um, engage with anyone that has a contrary view. And that that's my next question, uh, Dr. Barnett. 
so many intelligent people that I speak to, they're um, accomplished people who don't have a who are not getting paid by a big fossil fuel company or someone else. They don't buy that um, that climate change is real or at least that it's not really caused by anything that man is doing. Why do so many intelligent people believe that it's not real? It seems fantastic at, at first blush. I mean, you just say humanity equals climate change. And you're like, holy cow. You know, we've been living in a reality for millennia that says the world is, is, is all powerful. And we have to explain it through all, all powerful images like, you know, God made this flood ha- happen or God did something like this with locusts to punish us. Well, we've always thought about it in those terms, you know, almost like a deity, our planet. It's so powerful. It's so all-encompassing. We're so small compared to it. You come along with the American system of globalization around 1950, and it so turbocharges human activity across the board. I mean, I could show you chart after chart after chart after chart after chart. There's a great uh, uh, Welcome to the Anthropocene website that shows you all these charts where you can look at anything like uh, use of wood or use of coal or manufacturing or global tourism or foreign direct investment, whatever it is, it kind of meanders along at this very low level across the first half of the 20th century, gets to 1950, goes through the roof, okay? Subject after subject after subject, everything took off massively. And to me, that's the power of the American globalization model. We unleashed all this economic activity on that basis, we did something um, absolutely amazing. We created a global majority middle class, but big surprise, there are some costs attached to that. Okay, we put a trillion tons of carbon into the atmosphere. A trillion tons is roughly equal to the weight of all the buildings on the planet right now. Okay, we've altered the pH, the, the uh, uh, acidity level of oceans. Okay, we move more sediment and rock every year than Mother Nature does through erosion, 10 times as much as she does. And we've reformatted 75% of the land mass outside of Antarctica, all around the world. So we've changed the land, we've changed the water, we've changed the air. And, you know, we unleashed amazing powers with nuclear weapons back in 1945, and that's why. Uh, when you add up all these different changes, that's why scientists are saying basically starting around 1950, uh, humans become the geological force on the planet. And it does seem amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's just stunning. But you can't walk away from all that activity and all that success and all that good stuff without some sort of price to be paid. Uh, Dr. Barnett, I'm, I'm almost out of time, but I hope you'll come back again soon and we can have uh, m- maybe a, a full, even hour-long discussion on some of these issues. But I, ha- I can't let you go without asking you about this. A lot of people that believe pouring carbon into the atmosphere is a problem, they point to nuclear energy as a potential solution. Where do you come down sure. on the question of nuclear energy? I think anything that gets you down the carbon chain, okay, the carbon chain starts with wood. That's the worst. Okay, then it goes to coal. Then it goes to oil. Then it goes to natural gas. Then it goes to renewables like wind and solar and 
I, you know, I, frankly, I put nukes in the renewables. I know they're not classically, but they're way down the carbon chain in terms of emissions. So anything that brings us down, you know, the move to Teslas and electric cars, you know, because you can get that energy more and more, the electricity from natural gas. Natural gas is a hell of a lot better than oil, hell of a lot better than coal. Anything that moves down those, uh, that chain, better for the environment, more efficient, uh, better for the economy. Well, see, you got to come back. Maybe even we can do something next week because a lot of people have uh, some serious concerns about the transition to uh, electric vehicles specifically. But uh, let, let's sure. do a, a part two next week if you're willing. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Dr. Uh, Tom Barnett. And, uh, you know, again, we'll allow some more time next week when we review this, but uh, out of time here. 800 848 9222. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. 